Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. If you just joined me, I had a fascinating conversation with Dr. Randy Nelson in the last hour about the differences between uh, black progressives and white evangelicals. It was fascinating. I learned a lot. And if you are interested in that, you can check it out at the website on the podcast, which will be up later tonight at myfaithradio.com. Now I get to uh, be with another former University of Northwestern professor, Dr. Mark Muska. One of my favorite segments of all time is called Ask the Professor. I love hanging out with my friend Mark. So as we uh, wait for your questions to come in, you can do that by texting them over. Any question you have for Mark, 877-933-2484. Let's say that again, a little slower. 877 933 Eight four, Mark. Welcome back to the show. Hey, good to hear your voice, Bill. Thank you so much. Now, first question I have for you comes out of the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. Yep. And I'm going to focus on verse twenty four, but let me read the verse in front of that. Um, in twenty three, it says, "On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them." When they heard this. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So when it comes to raising your voices together in prayer, is this, how do we understand what they're talking about? Because when you talked about this before we even started the show, you were talking about a passage in Corinthians. So explain that if you would. Yeah, I don't know how much we can explain it, because Luke is recording something here, and he doesn't go into all kinds of great detail to tell us exactly how that was going. And so we have to leave it open to possibilities. Is this everyone there, after hearing this in the room, all praying at the same time out loud to God, and all praying different things, of course, uh, that's entirely possible that that's going on. It's very hard for us to picture the scene by just hearing these words of Luke. Mm-hmm. It might also be, though, that they were praying one by one, and there, I, I was kidding around with you a little bit, there's a whole lot of uh, assenting grunts and amens <laughs> and yes and that mm-hmm. with everybody else in the room. I don't know if you've ever been in an energetic prayer meeting like that, but that's, that's really something when you get people going and they really are bonding with each other in their request and and uh, going off with that, I think that's entirely uh, possible as well. Uh, is this something we should be doing in the church today? I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. That uh, It gives me pause, and part of that comes from Paul's instruction about uh, the gift of tongues over in 1 Corinthians 14, where he is urging the church that uh, it is okay for tongues to be spoken in the church publicly in their worship time with a couple of caveats. Number one, they speak one at a time. And number two, 
it's interpreted as they speak it by someone else that is has the gift of interpretation of tongues. And Paul says, that's not going on. Uh, they should keep quiet. Uh, they should not continue with that praying in tongues. And so it seems like Paul's getting at a spirit there of saying, when we pray together, we have to pray with intelligence together so that when I'm lifting requests in a congregation, they're joining in with what I'm saying, with amens, mm-hmm. and yes, and I agree with that. But in the case of tongues, if you don't know what the person's saying, how are you supposed to say amen to that? That you can't join with them unless they're, they're speaking in a language you can understand and say yes or you, you know, good. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's right. And yeah. so I think you can bring the same principle in here that – uh, if everyone's speaking at once, uh, how is that? Uh, how is that corporate prayer? Yeah, maybe it wasn't meant to be corporate prayer in Acts four. It might be that God was urging them to all speak at once, and He should sure sort out everybody's prayer at once. That so God's perfectly capable of doing that. So I think we have to leave it alone and not push it too far, and especially not to make some kind of eleventh uh, commandment out of this. You know, you shall pray all at once or not right. or something like that. That, that. I don't think we have anything close to the kind of evidence here to be able to uh, say that kind of thing. It is interesting, though, you didn't continue to the end of that passage, that uh, Luke comments here, after they're done praying, he says, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So this was a powerful scene in Acts 4. Mm -hmm. The apostles had been threatened to keep quiet about Jesus. They told the the Jewish leaders pretty much, you know, what's good for you is good for you. We're going to obey God and not you. And it seems like it ignited almost a defiance in the church here to say, okay, God, you hear their threats. Now we're depending on you that we can preach the Lord Jesus Christ and you will accompany this with signs and wonders and miracles. And it's like uh, battle is engaged right here with what's going to happen with the Christians here in the church. Mm -hmm. Mark, have you ever been in this situation where maybe there were 60 people in a room and they say, okay, let's break into groups of three or four people or five people and just pray in small groups. And then Everybody does that at once, and there's so much noise in the room that it sometimes feels more distracting than it does anything else. Yeah, and that's to a lesser degree. Instead of having one person pray for all 60, right. you have maybe, what, a dozen groups, and they all there's five in the group. And But uh, at the same time, it's just a smaller thing. I don't have a big problem with that, mm-hmm. uh, Bill, because you are able to hear the person who's praying in your small group, and you are able to say amen to them. And the other noise going on is just encouraging to say, it's not just us five that right. are coming before the Lord about this. There's a whole lot of... Of, of seeking out the Lord here going on in this room. So I'm not going to, again, you know, prohibit something like this, nor endorse it either. The important thing, Bill, is we come together in prayer and we join our hearts in our worship, our confession of sin, 
our requests that we make. Uh, that's what corporate prayer is about. And so we shouldn't be praying the same way together with another person or five other people or 500 people, the same way we pray when we're just by ourselves with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Then we can blab on and go into really personal things, but we try to knit that prayer together with the rest in the room, and, and they're just not listening to some oratory going on here with the one person praying out loud. And I think the church, we could we could do better with that to mm-hmm. really get, get involvement. I did an experiment with students years ago where I limited them, where we went into small groups in prayer, and I limited them to say, you can pray all you want, but only one sentence at a time. And then you got to keep quiet and let other people in the group pray. <laughs> it was really funny because after that, we talked about it a little bit. Almost all of them said, that was really weird. We've never done that before. But they also said, that was really impressive. It was really meaningful that we did sound like we were constructing a prayer together. Wow. Instead of just hearing one speech and then another one and then another one, even so regimented where you got to go around the circle one by one and boy, nobody cut in before (laughs) it's your turn in line. We can regiment prayer too much like that in a group. And so uh, there's all kinds of really good, fresh things we can bring to uh, group prayer. Mm Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that idea, Mark. So each person in the prayer circle could only m- say one sentence. Yeah. So the first person would say something like, Lord, we love you and we worship you today, period. And you're done. <laughs> then you're done. And the second person, though, says, I agree, Lord, your love, it it surpasses the heavens and we praise your name for it. Period. Okay, and I'm then liking number three, this. Three, you know, and just go around. You can pray as many times as you want, so it's yeah. not like you're one and done. But you, you, you keep it, keep it short. You involve the other people. That's really interesting. Did you do that for years? When you talk, quite a while. You yeah, know, I can't remember a lot of this stuff now. I'm getting old. So yeah, I, 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 well, you don't sound. You don't sound like you're uh, losing a second, a step. I mean, you're as sharp as ever. Well, I'll talk to my wife about that. So. Uh, I will. I will. So, uh, as the professor, Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. I love this segment, and I know if you have, if you have a question, send it over. You can text it, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. So, a question I've been asked, was Adam's sin the first sin? Uh because wasn't Satan the first one that sinned or rebelled? He was the first human to sin. We know that. Okay. From Genesis 1. Then tracing that back, there's this nasty serpent there in the garden and uh, obviously speaking evil and so obviously tainted by sin. But exactly who that is and how that happened is a little bit fuzzier in the the scriptures. Uh, We can put together some things, but I don't hold it with as high of a a sense of confidence than we can hold it that Adam was the the father of of sin in the human race. He is the head of the race. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, Dr. Mark Muska, if you have a question, please send it over, 877-933-2484. Ask the professor. We'll be right back. Listen to Faith Radio Live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app in your app store today. 
It is time to ask the professor, and my professor is my friend, Dr. Mark Muska. He taught um, here at the University of Northwestern for 30-some years, and we're uh, delighted that he can be here answering your questions. So send them over by text 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Here's a question that came from Erica in Matthew 16, verse 4. What does Jesus mean by the sign of Jonah. Yeah, this is really a good passage here where uh, Jesus is uh, dealing with uh, all kinds of stuff going on. And uh, I'm paging over there right now here that uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees are asking Jesus to show them a sign. And the Pharisees and Sadducees were not pals of Jesus. These guys had already made their intentions known. They opposed Jesus. And so they had uh, less than pure motives, maybe you'd say, for asking for some kind of sign. And Jesus talks a little bit about signs and reading the signs of the times. He says, uh, you can read the signs of the weather in the morning, but you can't discern the signs of the times. And then in verse 4, he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. This almost sounds like John the Baptist, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. We called them brood of vipers, you know, that Jesus is very hard on the Pharisees here. But the sign of Jonah, will will understand this to be the idea that, remember, Jonah was in the belly of the fish. And remember, folks, it wasn't a whale. It was a fish. we got to get past that folklore. Anyway, but he was in the belly of the fish for three days. And Jesus is going to make this comparison here to say the sign of Jonah being in that fish for three days, uh, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth uh, for three days. He's predicting his resurrection from uh, the dead here by uh, con- connecting it with, uh, with um, uh, Jonah. So uh, this, is, uh, this is pretty significant here of what's going on. I'm looking over here in John chapter 1 because... Uh, Jesus uh, gets into this here as well. The sign of Jonah will be given to this generation. But that's what he's talking about. The sign of Jonah meaning he was in that fish three days. I'm going to be in the earth. I'll be dead for three days and then rise again. Mm -hmm. Getting on the topic of Jonah, and I I love the book of Jonah. I could talk about it every day. But in uh, Jonah chapter 3, there's this this passage where in verse 4, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. Now, if you were really going to get into the heart of the city, you'd probably walk three days, and he goes in one day, and then does his sermon of 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yeah. And everyone believed. Yeah. Isn't that something? It's unbelievable, because you think about when the power of the Holy Spirit and the the power of God, um, a sermon like this, everybody converts. Yeah. Not very persuasive. And you know, it's it's I think it's a literary device that the writer used here. The the Jewish writers were wonderful with all kinds of figures of speech and expressions they used here. And I love this. <laughs> that Jonah's message here, it says he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then the next few verses talk about everybody repenting. 
You mm-hmm. know, the king, the the uh, people, they even and they went and they put on sackcloth and ashes right. to show their mourning. They fasted, and then it says that that both man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and men call on God earnestly that He may turn from His their they may turn from their wicked ways and violence in their hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw the burning anger that we will perish. And so I love this bill. I like to make it almost a. a a funny little saying because it is humorous. It's like little itty bitty message. Great big repentance. Yeah. I, Even I, the cows are wearing sackcloth. <laughs> Can you imagine a poor cow sitting there going, moo, moo. This is embarrassing. Somebody take this off of me, would you? Moo. Yeah. You know, so, but that is something how the power of God uh, struck this Nineveh and they repented from the king down to the critters. Yeah, and then not to mention the sailors on the ship. Oh, that was great too. That was phenomenal. Jonah's pouting, and he's going down in the belly of the, of the of the ship, and they cry out to their God, and they're they're uh, uh, when finally Jonah says, "No, it's not any. It, I'm the cause. Uh, throw me overboard, and the storm will stop." And uh, they still rode trying to get out of the storm. They didn't do it. But then they realized, they said to God, don't hold us accountable for this guy. He told us to toss him overboard. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do it. <laughs> and I just, I love it where it says here in uh, Jonah one sixteen. then the men feared God greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They yeah. sound more righteous than Jonah here. Way more. And these yeah. pagan solar, um, sailors are all of a sudden coming to faith. Yeah. So yeah. It, there's, there's, great, uh, there's a great message in the book of Jonah. I, I couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. All right, Dr. Mark Muska, um, are Christ's atonement and propitiation for our sins the same thing? He did both through the same act, but those theological terms carry different ideas with them. So... They're happening at the same time, but they're not quite the same thing. So they are synchronous, but not synonymous. Does that confuse everybody? So atonement means for the sin to be covered, for the sin to be taken away. A very good synonym for atonement is forgiveness, that Jesus Christ wipes the slate clean for us by taking his uh, his death, dying in our place, so our sins are taken on his death. And then propitiation carries with it the idea that God's wrath or his justice is satisfied by Jesus' death. That when he paid that price for our sin, it's like God's gavel came down and he said, yes, this is the the payment for sin and I accept it. It satisfies my justice for him to pay that price for you and for more, for me. So does that make sense? It same, does. Same th- th- act going on, but two different things. And you know, Bill, you can get about a dozen terms involved with that one act of Jesus. So let's get into things like uh, redemption and justification mm-hmm. and all those. So it's a great study to yeah. talk about what Jesus accomplished for us by dying in our place. Amen. If you have a question for Dr. Mark Muska, let me know what it is. It's Ask the Professor Time, 877-933-2484. Mark, if you can open your Bible to uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. The question is, can someone repent after death? 
Hebrews 9.27 seems to say no. Yeah, uh, this is quite a discussion in the church today, even the Bible-believing church. There's uh, been some scholarly work done to uh, to uh, make this a possibility. Uh, those in the church that uh, see that physical death for the human being, that is the end of the line for any kind of choice we can make to put our faith in the gospel and to become followers of Christ. And this verse is used probably more than anything else in the New Testament to support that idea. Once you die, uh, it's over. Uh, Your fate is determined. Either you put your faith in the gospel and you're going to see the face of Jesus, or you haven't, and there's a terrifying conclusion for you. I have to say that uh, my son's uh, uh, grandfather-in-law just died this week, but he managed to put his faith in the gospel before he did that, and he kept saying uh, some of his last words are, I'm saved, I'm saved. Isn't isn't that beautiful, Bill? Oh, it's fantastic. So he, we have all the confidence in the world that he is beholding the face of Jesus this very moment uh, because he put his faith in the gospel. This verse, though, Hebrews 9, 27, it says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for humans to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. So, sounds pretty clear. Uh, you, you die once, and then uh, we face the judgment of God, either yes or no our faith in the gospel. So uh, this is, though, I have to respect this. There is a case being made today by some in the church, scholars in the church, that are making a case for what's called post-mortem salvation, that even after death, the humans who have not put their faith in the gospel still are presented with the gospel in the netherworld or the afterlife, whatever you want to call it, and they have the opportunity to put their faith in Jesus then, and presumably this can go on for all eternity, that they're offered this presentation and this invitation to put their faith in the gospel, and so they can uh, move from death to life uh, anywhere in the foreseeable uh, future. And so uh, I, I have to say, Bill, we could get into a long discussion about this. I don't think that that is uh, sustainable in the Scripture, but I sure enjoy having the conversations with uh, people who disagree with me on this. Uh, I don't think we can make a case for that post-mortem sad, uh, salvation. Mm-hmm. All right. I appreciate that, Mark. Um, we're going to take a break here in just a minute, so I can't get started on another question, but I've got some great questions coming in, and I will give you a heads up. How about that, Mark? Oh, man, that's a good day when you do that. I know, I know. You always want information in advance. <laughs> um, but this is interesting. First Peter chapter 3, uh, 19. I think this has come up before, but it's that uh, passage where Jesus preaches to the Spirit's um, did Jesus preach in hell? Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe when we come back, we can discuss that uh, briefly. Yep. And if you have a question for uh, Dr. Muska, please text it over 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. 
Uh, we're going to have a wonderful day of forgiveness, June 28th. Uh, so you're going to be uh, looking forward to that because I know we are as well. It's going to be a fantastic um, day. I don't want you to miss it. We'll take a break and be right back. Welcome to the show. Dr. Mark Musk is my guest, and we are uh, in a segment called Ask the Professor, which means we have a question for uh, a Bible professor. Uh, Mark taught here at the University of Northwestern for many decades. You can ask whatever question you like. You can text it over, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. All right, Mark, uh, let's see. I was back, I was poking around Acts chapter 4 again. Sure. And there was that, I can't find it now. I hate when this happens. Yeah. Um, where they were talking. You're reading the Bible, though, Bill. Keeps you going. I know. Mm-hmm. They were talking about um, Peter and John just being ordinary guys, mm-hmm. but they recognized that they had been in the presence of Jesus. Yeah, that's uh, 4.13, bud. Let me see if I can find it here. 4.13, yeah, there it is. Just like you said, they were unschooled, ordinary men, yep. which is encourages, encouraging to me as I host this show. Yeah. Uh, but having said that, a um, question came in, why didn't some of the disciples write any books of the Bible? Why is most of the Bible written by Paul? Well, the easy answer to that is it's because God chose it to do that way, and I'm not going to argue about it. <laughs> All right. But we don't know how much was written by other disciples. It may be that Thomas had a, a, a record of things with Jesus and Nathaniel and some of these others of the 12, but they just did not survive antiquity. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were lost or for one reason or another, or they just kept notes and they didn't actually put it in the form of a formal gospel or writing, something like that. We, we have to leave the door open for that. But the idea that Paul wrote most of the New Testament uh, this is God's uh, uh, choice. I, I don't know, uh, you know, as far as how many words he wrote, if it was most of the test, New Testament, but he, he wrote 13 books. And so uh, that's quite a bit. But uh, we, we have to remember, too, Paul was uh, highly educated, a Pharisee, uh, an elite Pharisee. And God used that for him to be able to write these letters, especially to the churches that he planted in the Near East there. And so uh, those did survive. These churches obviously uh, took them very seriously and uh, preserved them even when – uh, persecution took place, they managed to survive through antiquity so that we have them today. And I just say, bless the Lord. Thank you for that. We we get so much guidance from Paul. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's a decision that God made. Uh, he is uh, He's the one in charge, and I'm going to say yes, sir, to that. Yeah, as will I. All right, this is a question, Mark, uh, regarding the post-mortem opportunity. Uh, can you explain 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19? That's that passage where Jesus, uh, it talks about, did Jesus uh, preach the gospel in hell when he descended into hell? 
Yeah, that's a beauty. Uh, Peter is one, I love his writing, but sometimes I wish he would have said a little more because <laughs> he, he didn't mm-hmm. really explain it uh, a lot of the time. And so uh, let me just read the passage here. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 18. Uh, Peter says, uh, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now that I can understand, and it's glorious what he says there. But now he says in verse 19, in which also Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now imprisoned, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And it goes on from there to talk about this. So uh, does this support this idea of post-mortem opportunities to be saved? Uh, At surface reading, it sounds like it's possible. And I have to respect that. Uh, God may be uh, up to much more that I'm aware of and that I can figure out. And so I've got to leave the door open to that. But I don't think it's... Uh, uh, persuasive enough to make a formal doctrine out of it. And I know my friends on the other side of this will disagree with me about that. But uh, this, uh, to the spirits imprisoned during the days of uh, Noah here, uh, this, uh, it may be he's making proclamation to say, I am giving you the testimony here of God's righteousness displayed through me to provide forgiveness of sin, but that doesn't mean they're getting an opportunity. Remember, in the days of Noah, things were so bad that God regretted that he made the human race. Mm-hmm. Remember that? I in do. Genesis 6, that's just brutal, yeah. what's going on there. And so, they are they getting an opportunity to be saved here? Ah, you know, maybe. I think this is much more a testimony against them of God's righteousness and Jesus providing this uh, forgiveness through his death on the cross. Uh, in the next chapter of Peter, he gets into the same kind of thing where uh, he, he says some things that I wish he would have explained it more because I don't understand him really well. First mm-hmm. Peter 4, 6, it says, For the gospel for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. And it's like, okay, you know, it, it, you pay your money, you take your choice on that one as far as <laughs> being able to to uh, figure that out. Is he going to the place of the dead, the netherworld, and preaching with the opportunity that they may live in the Spirit and put their faith in the gospel and be saved even after they've died? It's possible. But to build, again, a teaching off of this, I think, is a very skinny branch on the tree to shinny out on. It just... It doesn't have the weight to it that uh, that you'd like to have, I guess. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Mosca asked the professor, let me know what questions you have for Mark, 877-933-2484. My next question, Mark, is how many times can you repent for the same sin? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I like to talk about it because if I'm understanding this right, the idea of repentance, Bill, is the idea that you have a change of mind about what you're doing, what's right, what's wrong, following God versus uh, 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 rebelling against him. The word itself in the New Testament means to change your mind, okay? Metanoio, it means to change your mind. And so, I I think the idea fits that when we recognize, first of all, when we put our faith in the gospel and become followers of Christ, much of that involves a change of mind 
where we no longer think we can be goody goodies and earn our way to heaven. We no longer think because our brother's a priest or a, a preacher that we can enter, we're going to get into heaven. We realize I'm toast if Jesus' death doesn't forgive my sin. That's a fundamental change of mind that takes place. So we repent when we put our faith in the gospel. But then for almost all Christians, they're confronted with sin in their life after that. Maybe they weren't aware of it or they justified it in the past where maybe they got a foul mouth or they criticize people in a mean kind of a way. This is something that dogged me for so long as a Christian, the clever put down. You know, you make a joke, but it's at somebody's expense. And yeah. God convicts you about it, and you say, you know, that's wrong. I agree, Lord. That's confession. That I agree. That's wrong. And then you have a change of mind about it to say, and you know, Lord, I want to follow you more than I want to be some clever put-down guy. <laughs> and so I'm changing my mind about this. This is not right. I'm not going to try to excuse it anymore or blame others or rationalize it. It's wrong. It'll always be wrong. It'll never be right. Do you hear a change of mind going on there? Yeah. There's a fundamental change of attitude and mind that you have about that sin. Does that mean you're never going to use another clever put-down in your life? Probably not, especially if it's something that's been going on in your life for a while. And so you put down your sister because of the outfit she's got on, and you go, oh, boy, you know, uh, I I shouldn't have said that. And you confess that, Lord, that's wrong. But I don't know if you have to repent again because you're saying it's wrong because you repented before when you said I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do this anymore. I, I, I it's wrong. It'll never be right. Mm-hmm. A really good metaphor that I've used that I think helps with this is repentance is the idea of declaring war on sin. I like when you got that foul mouth, you declare war on it to say I want it out of my life. I'm not going to recon- uh, r- r- rationalize it any longer. I love it. Blame anybody else. This is wrong. It'll always be wrong. So help me God. Amen. And you, <laughs> de- you, you declare war on that sin. But just like in regular wars, Bill, when the United States declared war on Japan in 1941, did they win every battle? No. They won some battles. They lost some battles. But the declaration of war was still there. Mm-hmm. Still were taking it to the enemy. In this case, a foul mouth enemy. I'm not going to give up on this. And so y- your repentance is there. And now it's a matter of just being willing to admit it when you screw up and to renew that again and to say, you know, Lord, I declared war on this years ago, and I'm not going to give this up until I, I take my last breath. You know, when repentance really gets nullified, yeah, it's when somebody surrenders to sin. They originally repented and said, you know, I don't want this in my life anymore. But then they give up and they say, you know, Lord, I've struggled with this so long. I don't care anymore. I'm just going to do it and I don't care. That's one sorry, ugly, sad situation when Mm -hmm. somebody does that, when they just surrender to it. Then their repentance has been nullified when Uh they, they change their mind like that. So I hope this is giving confidence to people to say, make make good with God and and make that decision to change your mind about that sin and not to make excuses or blame others in that. And now live and confess it when you screw up, but your repentance is still there if you're still fighting it. You might fight it for the rest of your life. It might be one of those kind of chronic temptations that you just never, ever get over completely in your life. Well, you're pretty wound up today. Well, that's a big one, and I think so many people feel guilty. They think, oh, man, I thought my repentance was real, but here I did it again. 
And I, I say to them, yeah, your repentance is real. You're just immature yet, just like me, and we still need to grow. And so when you stumble again, confess it and keep going and renew that declaration of war on that sin. Don't give up. Mm-hmm. So good. All right, my next question, Dr. Mark Muska. If you have a question for Mark, send it over, 877-933-2484. Question is, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm wondering when Cain killed Abel with the rock. Cain was put out from among them. Who is it or why was a mark put on his head? Yeah. Who was there who would have killed Cain? Yeah. Uh, This is one of my easiest answers. You know what you're going to hear next. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a whole lot in Genesis that we're not told. Presumably, there's a whole lot more children that Adam and Eve are having. Who knows how many years go by before they even fall in the garden and eat the forbidden fruit and then have these children. And then Cain takes out uh, his anger on Abel like this. There's all kinds of room in the text of Genesis for all this to take place, but the author didn't include it. Uh, it would satisfy our curiosity, and so I, I, I feel for the, the, the caller here who texted this in, but we just have to let some of this stuff go. Genesis covers really so much or, or so little detail of what happened over those thousands of years in, in human history. And so I don't know. Maybe we'll look it up and, and find out from God when we get to heaven someday. I don't know. That uh, I hope there's uh, biblical reruns so mm-hmm. we can see some of this. All right. This next question, Mark, comes out of Matthew uh, chapter 26, verses 26 and 27. The question is, any recommendations to explain this passage to my kids eating Jesus's body and drinking his blood. Yeah. Well, that one, again, this has caused a whole lot of discussion and disagreement. Well, I know. In in the church. And so let me read it here first here. Uh, Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper here. He's going to die in just a couple days, and he's with his 12 disciples. And in verse 26, Jesus says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. When they had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And so that are we actually eating uh, God, uh, Jesus' flesh and blood. There is, uh, this is uh, the most literal reading of this, and it is very strongly held by a great number of people who call themselves followers of Christ. There's whole denominations that are are committed to this, that this, the, the, the bread and the wine are actually transformed into the body and blood of Christ when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, they're quick to point out Tangibly, they still appear to be bread and wine. They taste like bread and wine, but God has transformed them into the body and blood of Christ. So our union with Christ becomes physical, Bill. We actually are taking the body and blood of Christ into ourselves and becoming identified with him even more closely because of that. And so that's one view on that. Another view of this says that this is the idea that the the body and the blood of Christ, that Jesus' presence 
enters into these uh, elements of the bread and the wine. So it still remains bread and wine, but the presence of Christ is, and there's three prepositions that are used for this, is in, with, and under the bread and the wine. So mystically, you are actually taking Jesus into your body when you eat the bread and drink the cup. That's number two. Can Can I have time for two? Oh, yeah. Number three is that this is a metaphor, and what's happening, you eat the the bread and the wine, but Christ is present spiritually in that ceremony, and so you are joining close to Christ again and being identified with him by taking that bread and wine. That's the third one. And then the fourth one sees this the most metaphorically as a memorial that Jesus sets up, where by eating this bread and wine, the important thing is here, you're remembering why he died. And he says it right there in Matthew 26, where he says, verse 28, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. That's what we're supposed to remember. It wasn't just a tragedy. He's not just being a good example by dying on the cross. He's providing forgiveness of sins. And when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're supposed to keep that for in the forefront of our minds mm-hmm. as we do so. So right. that, I got to leave it there. Okay, and then we need to go to break. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Ask the professor, 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest, Ask the Professor, and he is an outstanding professor who was here as a professor for over 30 years at the University of Northwestern. And I got some great questions, Mark. And okay. this, this one, I know you've got your Bible open, Matthew 17, verses yeah. 9 to 13. Mm-hmm. Is Jesus saying John the Baptist was Elijah? Or was he really, or what, what is he really saying when he was referring to Elijah? Yeah, that's a really good question. Let me read the passage. Uh, At verse 9, it says, uh, this is right after the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember uh, Elijah and Moses appeared there with Jesus? Mm -hmm. And now it says, as they, Jesus with Peter, James, and John, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell this vision to no one until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. His disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then Matthew says, Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Okay? Mm-hmm. So he's definitely linking John the Baptist, to Elijah. He does the same thing, and I'm not going to read it all, but if people want to reference it, in uh, Matthew 11, six chapters earlier, 
uh, John's disciples had asked Jesus if he was the one or should we look for another. And after they leave, Jesus comments about John the Baptist saying that he is, there's never been a greater prophet, but the least in heaven is greater than John. And so uh, this link has been made before. But I don't think we can say that this is actually Elijah that was born. It would be kind of weird because remember Elijah, for those of you who know your old um, uh, stories from Sunday school in the Old Testament, Elijah was uh, swept up into heaven with the chariots of fire. Remember that? Mm -hmm. And Elisha saw it in that. And so it would be kind of weird for him to get born then as a baby, John the Baptist, and then live up again and still be the same guy. Uh, That causes some uh, uh, problems there. And so uh, I think what what helps us here is in the book of Malachi, a couple of different times, Elijah is referenced as the one who is coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord, namely Jesus appearing. And uh, so he, we could say that John the Baptist represented the spirit and the power of Elijah in his preaching and preparing the way for the Lord. Malachi 3 and 4 makes this clear, and Isaiah does as well. In Isaiah 40, uh, many people have read this, where uh, uh, John is described as preparing the way for the Lord, um, bringing down the mountains and bringing up the valleys and making straight the path for the Lord's coming. So uh, I don't know if we can say that's actually Elijah. I would prefer to say that John ministered in the spirit and the power of mm-hmm. Elijah. Yeah. Mark, this question has come up before, but I really like the way it was asked this time. Okay. And it goes like this. Can you explain the relevance of this Melchizedek character who just appears from nowhere yeah. or no, from no apparent origin? Yeah. Uh, Melchizedek is talked about in Genesis. of he uh, uh, Abraham himself comes across Melchizedek and he honors him that uh, he is, he pays tithes to Melchizedek. And in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews really picks up on this. And uh, I don't know uh, how much detail I can get into with you about this, but he talks about how Jesus himself is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He was not a priest. Jesus was not a priest according to the order of Aaron that was set up by Moses and the Ten Commandments and the book of Leviticus and the whole business. That was a different order. And it's not order, consecutive order. It's an order like uh, some people realize this with the Catholic orders of priesthood. There's the Dominicans and there's the Jesuits and so forth. That, that Aaron was the first of the priests according to the Old Testament law, but Jesus was not that kind of priest. Melchizedek wasn't part of that. Jesus was a priest according to this order of Melchizedek. And so apparently this has importance to show us what Jesus accomplished was not as a part of the law of Moses. He was bringing a whole new thing in. And I think this is what the writer of Hebrews is getting into in uh, Hebrews chapter 8 when he, uh, he, he quotes Jeremiah 31 saying, Jesus brings a whole new covenant in. The old covenant that Moses instituted in uh, Exodus 24 has now been 
uh, uh, overcome by this new covenant. It's a better covenant, the writer of Hebrews says, than the the uh, old covenant because it has better promises. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, this whole new thing, uh, the writer of Hebrews wants to bring Melchizedek in to show it's a whole different covenant that's being set up here now with Jesus. It fulfills the old covenant. Jesus says that himself in Matthew 5. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But it's it transcends the old covenant. It's a whole better way for God to covenant with us than the law of Moses was. Mm-hmm. Mark, we just have a couple of minutes left. Sure. Uh, so the, the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Even the, the first word, love the Lord your God, I think in the Hebrew it's avala, which means action. And I think we get so tied up in emotions that we think of love as emotions, but we, we love with our, our actions, don't we? Yeah, and I like the way Jesus says that because he gets to every part of us as human beings. Yeah. He says with our heart, our emotions, our affect, our mind, that's the thinking part of us, and with our might, that's our actions. So in our actions, our thinking, and our feeling, that's what love encompasses. It's not just one of those. It's the whole shemil put mm-hmm. together. And, he, and what's really interesting is is Jesus adds the word mind in Mark twelve thirty. If you read the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, where this comes from, it says that we are to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, and might. But Jesus in Mark 12, 30 says we are to love him with all our heart, soul, might, and mind. He includes that. So I love that. We can, yeah. we can uh, meditate on that one for a little while, too. Yeah, well, I think we should do that because that's all the time we have. Mark, thank you so much once again for coming on the program and being so awesome. Oh, it's, it's so much fun, Bill. I just love it that people are asking questions. They're reading and they want to understand. And they're so thinking. Keep them coming. Don't feel and... guilty for having questions. That's I don't know. I know. All right, have a great rest of the night, and I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, sounds good. You bet. Dr. Mark Muska has been my guest. If you missed any of this, boy, he was passionate today, as he always is, but uh, some amazing answers to some great questions. If you missed any of it, check it out at the podcast, myfaithradio.com. That's our show. I hope you have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.